I could give a gift to a young person uh, and just have one gift to give them, what would it be? And uh, I think that gift would be native curiosity. Yeah. Um, because that that sense of inside you of being curious, of wanting to understand, I think is at the root of so much. And what can blossom from there is amazing in terms of your uh, way you you uh, have relationship with people, the way you uh, have your relationship with the world, the way you want to seek out information on so many different levels uh, in so many different ways. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, welcoming you to our next episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. Today, my guest is Chet Jordan. Chet is one of the co-founders and co-owners of Digital Architecture, a business that he and his partner Ken Blaze began. I think it's accurate to say they began it in Maine before they moved it to Florida. Their mission was to digitize and make easy to use college and university uh, course catalogs. They've expanded into way more than that, but that was the initial uh, opportunity for them. And they began to digitize course catalogs so the students and professors in the universities and colleges they work with would be able to access the course catalogs quickly, be able to see what was available, what wasn't. If you've been a student in higher education, you know that getting a course into your curriculum uh, having to do with your major is often a challenging undertaking, and they digitized that and made it infinitely easier. Bigelow architected a recapitalization of digital architecture by Serent Capital, uh, I'm going to say five years ago, and uh, Chet shares with us today the really interesting and useful observations he has of being a board member of the business after it was private equity owned, and then actually having gone through uh, a second transaction with Serent, where they just uh, did a recap of the business themselves. So Chet uh, is uh, an expert of um, entrepreneurs, of being able to think through what his alternatives were, both strategic and private equity alternatives, and then actually being, you know, feet on the street of actually working with a private equity firm, uh, bringing in a new CEO, uh, transitioning his and Ken's role, and watching sort of how that all works. And for those of you who are entrepreneur owner managers thinking about a private equity transition someday, this is just invaluable, invaluable advice. I hope you enjoy it. So one of the things I was thinking about was in our last conversation, <clears throat> that, 60 days ago, 30 yeah. to 60 days ago, something like that. It was yeah. really fun for me, um, and I was reflecting, getting off the conversation. What an unbelievably independent, critical thinker you are, and I guess the question I had was, have you always been that way? I've always been a pain to the people around me. <laughs> um, and kind of uh, not not necessarily by design or intent, but uh, it's funny. I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and, and uh, you know, you, you get to a point in your life where you have a lot of younger people around you, and you, you have these opportunities every now and then to try to play the sage, even though you figure that you really uh, people have to make their own paths in life and all that. But I said, you know, if I could give a gift to a young person uh, and just have one gift to give them, what would it be? And uh, I think that gift would be native curiosity. Yeah. Um, because that that sense of inside you of being curious, of wanting to understand, I think is at the root of so much. 
and what can blossom from there is amazing in terms of your uh, way you you uh, have relationship with people, the way you uh, have your relationship with the world, the way you want to seek out information on so many different levels uh, in so many different ways. So uh, what I identified mm-hmm. as independent critical thinking, you just linked to curiosity. I think yeah. you're right. I'm yeah. not sure which is yeah. which. Yeah. Right. But so uh, do you think that was... Is that genetic, or is that something your parents taught you? Um, it's a mystery. <laughs> it, yeah, it really is, because, um, you know, I had one parent, my mom, yeah. and I think uh, part of uh, my upbringing, uh, she was a, a single mom with, I had a younger sister and myself growing up in the 60s, and in a, you know, a very uh, poor area of town, and, and she had to be very resourceful. Uh, as a divorced woman in the early 60s, it was a different world to be that. Um, and so, you know, I remember seeing her having to clean um, our, one of our sources of heat was an old oil stove, right. believe it or not, in the middle of Portland, yeah. an oil stove, and, uh, and, and how she had to figure out how to do it because she couldn't afford to get an oil burner person to, to repair it. And, and I just, that kind of struck me as, wow, you know. And so I think that uh, in terms of having some influences, I think that was some of it, is seeing that resourcefulness um, and that, you know what, if you apply yourself, you can solve a problem or you can understand the problem. And uh, I think that's probably some of the roots of that is uh, culturally or from an upbringing point of view. But I also think that part of it just is innate to me is I've always had that kind of curiosity of, of uh wanting to do a deep dive on a lot of stuff um, and understand it. A lot of my friends uh, used to give me a lot hard time about it. I think my nickname, they called me the professor for a while because it was like I was reading these books that I shouldn't have been reading probably when I was 12. You know, like uh, <laughs> I remember one of them I decided uh, was had to be curious was uh, Freud's analysis of dreams book, right? Right. Totally gibberish to a kid that's 12 years old. I mean, But you no were interested brain. in dreams. But I was interested in understanding... Yeah something about it right so even though i might have only got 10 percent of what the gist was in a lot of the chapters of that it was uh, something that exposed me to something and uh, i think that's part of it i think the other part of it is it having a lot of limitations um, growing up that uh, i found that the whole world was exposed to me uh, by by reading and by understanding stuff that uh, it opened up the world broader to me than what was in my immediate neighborhood which was not very enriching at the time it was enriching in a different way, you know, but uh, uh, in terms of, of exposing, you know, you, you to various uh, ideas or, you know, influences beyond what that is. Uh, did, you, did you feel like, given your, uh, the lim- limitations of the resources around you and some of the challenges you had and also your desire to learn and be curious, did you feel like at an early age that you were going to follow an independent path, a different path, maybe even an entrepreneur path? I don't think that uh, I was self-aware enough or, or looked at it from a, like some kind of grand plan point of view. Yeah, I think a lot of it was driven by, frankly, just by survival. And, and in order to get my needs met, the only way I was going to get them met is by my own volition, you know, and say, I, I've got to do this. and. If I wanted to have a new bike, then I got to figure out a way to get the <laughs> dollars to do that. What was your first job? It's uh, a good question. Um, well, I think that, uh, like many other kids in New England, 
um, probably uh, going around the neighborhood and offering to shovel yeah. sidewalks right. in the wintertime right. um, and rake leaves in the fall. Right. It was probably a good source of income. Yeah, that sucked. Uh, and then uh, you know, <laughs> I actually enjoyed it. You know, uh, and I think that knocking on the door does, you know, some, yeah. Maybe a, and we also did. We had fun with it because there was a lot of uh, elderly people in the in the neighborhood in Portland at, at the at that time uh, with limited means. And you know, through, sometimes we wouldn't even knock on the door; we just shovel the widow's yeah. sidewalk or yeah. whatever, and, uh, and and got a sense of pride out of that. You know, a sense of community out of that. But uh, I think that's kind of the roots of some of the entrepreneurial. And then you know, odd, odd stuff. I mean, I took over a friend's paper root farm yeah. for a while. And, yeah. And uh, things like that. And I think the the early stuff is I did a lot of. Uh, I, I actually got a relationship with the, uh, one of the business people up there, and he, he kind of saw that I had some ambition, so he, he hired me to to uh, do some yard work. And he had a nice house that was outside of Portland, and then carted me over there to do some yard work for him one day. And then it was a pretty big job, so he said, "Well, why don't you get one of your friends to involve it?" So all of a sudden, it dawned on me that I could. I could get a little slice of that. I could give my friend X amount, but you know what? I, what the heck? I'm nice. giving this guy. So it was like a, the light went on that, you know, I don't have to get paid entirely for what I do. I can also get paid for what I know and for being a coordinator of resources. How old and all would that. you have been? Uh, probably, I'm going to say maybe 12 or 14. Wow. You know, what a great lesson to learn at 12 or 13, right? Yeah. And then uh, I actually, uh, there was a couple of neighborhood grocery stores. I think, I remember one of the key um, jobs is uh, I had a neighbor who was a, kind of a lazy guy, and he was older than I was. And there was a, a drugstore up on Munjoy Hill. It was Munjoy Drug Company. And uh, an older guy by the name of Dave Feldman uh, was uh, doing doing uh, dr- um, pharmacy work up there. I think he, he actually had a charter on his wall, you know, a license that was like, zero zero one from the state because he he didn't have to take any of the any of the he was grandfathered in he was had been doing it so long as a compounding pharmacist and so this guy uh, it was a it was a uh, uh, like a soda fountain yeah uh, a little postal a little postal division yeah and then and then uh, the pharmacy as well and he had sundries that were there it was a small little place and uh, so this this guy was set up to go to work for this guy, uh, a local thing, and he, he got up one morning and you know that he was supposed to go to work. He says, "I don't want to take that job. Chet, won't you go do it?" And I went, "Really?" I said, yeah. So I walked in in, in his stead, and uh, this, you know, he goes, "Well, I don't know." Uh, he said, "Well, he doesn't want to do it. I'm I'm already ready, ready to go." So I think that was my first really job where somebody paid me on a you know weekly basis. And uh, so I used to say that what I was was I was a, a soda jerk and postal clerk was my <laughs> first uh, position, and occasionally I'd help him count some some of the pills. What did you get paid by the hour? Oh God, it's. Uh, I remember that it amounted to for part-time work. I I might have been started out it was like twenty bucks for the week for the week, right? Yeah, and, right. Uh, and then I felt really fantastic because I went to him and I said, you know what, I think I'm worth a little bit more than that. And he gave me 25. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, after that, uh, one of the guys, there was a, a little convenience grocery store that was built across the street from him. And uh, one of the people who were running that um, saw my ambition one day and said, hey, why would you like to help us out here and stock shelves and do this? And I'm like, we'll pay you X amount. And I was like, almost double what this guy was getting my labor for so i went to him and i really you know i love this guy david it was a, a very special um 
man and uh and great, he gave you your guy. first break he gave me my first break yeah. and, I, and just had good advice and yeah. i didn't have a father so yeah so whenever i i'd have that kind of relationship i kind of relied on some of the sage wisdom from from yeah. other male role models yes and, and he was a good one but I, I looked at him, and I said, this is what I'm going to And he was both mad because he, he said, I can't pay you that. Yeah. But also kind of like, yeah, well, go, go kid. For you. Go yeah. kid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. and uh, so then I started working at the grocery across the street. So that's my first two jobs, I guess. I love that. I, I, uh, I just want to relate a quick story because you mentioned how important David was to you. I had an early job when I was maybe 14 or 15. I know I was in high school. And I worked every day after school at a clothing store in downtown Manchester, New Hampshire, where I grew up. And Morris Bronstein owned the clothing store. It was called Ben Richards. And uh, I get paid $1.60 an hour. And so I said that to someone here recently, and I think they thought I was kidding. But that was the minimum wage in the 19—it would have been like early 70s. But the thing that got it for me was I did the multiplication in my head that you just did. And I said, wow, I worked— Let's just say twenty hours part time for the for the week. It was only thirty two dollars. Yeah, yeah. But you know that it seemed like a lot of money at the time for a kid my age. And God bless Mr. Bronstein. I don't know why he ever um, had a big enough heart to hire me who knew nothing and like just guide me and coach me through just basic skills, right? Just right. to like show up on time, work hard, you know, just yeah. do the stuff that you had to do. So yeah, I, I also have fond memories of the guys who gave me my first break it was really him were you a good student <clears throat> um yes i think I, I for the most part my grades uh, all the way through were that again it's that, that sense of i think i was it was uh, a lot of self-driven because i wasn't getting a lot of uh, people who were demanding for me to get a's yeah. but i think a lot of the the uh, satisfaction around that success and again uh, gaining knowledge was a, enjoyable for me and so I did, I did pretty well in school. And so when you um, were in high school, were you going to school and working all the time? Yes. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Uh, by that time, um, I'd say going into my junior year, um, and, and, and I have a funny story, which I hope the IRS isn't listening to this podcast. I doubt they are, Chet. Because uh, I'm, there's, it's a funny how a little tiny lie can follow you for a long, long time. <laughs> I'm getting ready. I'm getting to that age where I have to start dealing with Social Security paperwork, right? And uh, I get one of those reports, and it has my birth date as being a year off. In other words, they oh. have me as a year older. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how could that happen? And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that when I went to get my first job and I had to apply for Social Security, that the age for um, doing it was 15 in the state of Maine. Yes. And I was 14. Yes. So when I made out that paperwork i said well i'm gonna just budge this by a year yes right so it stuck with uh, you so, all this and, time and, and so and all of a sudden now I, I have to straighten this little uh fib out that's <laughs> funny but yeah. uh, but uh, when i was in high school i actually um went from that grocery position i, I had a friend that was working um in what we used to call stuffing newspapers which yeah. was putting inserts and ads right. and stuff into the, into the newspapers and so uh, that was usually done very late in the evenings. And it was done by hand. And it was done by hand. Wow. Which was quite a skill. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, you know, you pick up these little odd skills. And uh, down the road when I was working volunteer work or something like that, and, and people you know, needed to put things in letters or, or uh, stuff like that, it's, I'd set it all up the way we used to stuff newspapers. <laughs> and they'd look at me like, what the heck are you how doing? How do you know how to do that? How do you know how to do that? Well, That's cool. But um, so I, I started out and I, I worked a lot. Um, 
in, in the Portland Press Herald um, newsroom, uh, which is where their printing presses and all that were. And the editions would come off the press, and there'd be a bunch of us lined up on benches, stuffing in these circulars into uh, into the newspapers. I did that for a while. How many of you would be doing that at a time on a shift? Oh my God, um, I, I think they kind of. Because uh, at the time they also did a an evening newspaper called Evening Express, and so there'd be a small shift for the Evening Express because the circulation wasn't that huge. And I think during the week the Press Herald was a little bit bigger, uh, but there was you know, maybe I'm going to say 25 or 30 or so. Okay. But on the weekends, because the the, the uh, uh, Sunday Telegram was had wide circulation, the place was full. It might have been a, I guess it could have been 80 or 100. Of you stuffing yeah, newspapers. Yeah. yeah. Wow, so you must you had a pretty collegial group, I can imagine. Yeah, there was a lot of high, a lot of hijinks would go yes, on in there. Yes, yeah. uh, I could tell stories and <laughs> that some of these people would probably laugh about uh, that that were involved in it. But I, I had a friend that was a, a little diminutive in size, and uh, and he decided there was a way that he could get out of having to stuff newspapers all night long on a Saturday night. Um, and he they used to have stacks of mailbags, and he decided one day he was going to zip himself inside one of the mailbags. So that he could sleep in a mailbag all night long and not have to do any of this thing. I thought it was pretty innovative, but I said, "Man, I, I said, he's he come out and he's all sweaty." And I'm like, "You know, I think it was, you know, I think it would have been more fun for you to stand here and talk to us all night long rather than, you know, he he put more effort into trying to get out of the work than it was probably worth." And I think there's a lesson there as well. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of people who spend more time in avoidance than just getting down and doing things. You know. Did you go right to work after high school? Um. I worked my way through um, uh, the mailing room through, um, as I was mentioning, uh, someone just recently is a, the uh, the Press Herald had a printing press, and then the, one of the main streets in, in Portland is Congress Street, and they had a tunnel that went from the printing presses to the administrative office building across the street, and uh, so you really made it big if somehow you were able to find a job through the tunnel to the other side where the, all the offices were. And so I actually uh, was able to get a copy boy position, which at the time is, is like a gopher in the yeah. city room, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's it's kind of like uh, uh, if you can picture Woodward and Bernstein movie there and, yeah. and seeing it, that's what it felt like, you know, yeah, only right. on a smaller scale, right? Yeah. And so there was some excitement around that, hearing all of the UPI and AP machines chattering away, and you know, the old typewriters going at it with all these reporters doing their thing, and then yeah. the, the big urgency. Which, yeah, there was yeah. absolutely in the sense that you were on the the you, uh, the, the pulse of, of yeah. news because you heard about everything before anybody else did, and they didn't read it in the newspaper, right? You know, years and years before the internet, and uh, even uh, and of course you were getting the same information that maybe a radio reporter would have gotten at the time. So you're a incredibly creative guy, and, and did you have an opportunity to express your creativity in in working there? Yes, and sometimes not so productive ways. <laughs> um, I did um, uh, at that point in time have you know again I think this is a curiosity thing but they I was kind of fortunate I ended up working from copy position I got a position as uh, kind of like a, a sports clerk and I did some minor stories for um, you know like high school basketball games that I never went to stuff like that and learned all the cliches that you can apply sure. uh, by by reading other people's stuff and just using it you know. Um, but uh, while I was there and just starting in the, in the uh, sports department, uh, they had gone from what they call hot type, which is they actually had made lead, lead plates and put them on the presses to, right. to make the newspaper, to what they call cold type, which is the first 
kind of uh, attempt at doing a digitalized kind of uh, format for the they still made plates, but they made them out of a polymer, right. and everything was computer-based. So right. they were going to this computer system, um, which I, the name of it eludes to me now. Is it Hendrix? No. Okay. No. Uh, it eludes me now, but the, the uh, Waterloo uh, was the name okay. of the, the – uh, it was an IBM-based system, but the, the operating system was Waterloo script. Oh, yeah. yeah. For some reason, I remember that now. But uh, – and so – I was able to uh, get in, and I, I was, you know, I'd crack the manuals and and uh, learn what these various commands could be for these terminals. It was a mainframe system with these little terminals connected to it all over the building, and uh, so I really thought this is fascinating. And I could go in and see this, you know, big IBM machine, and and uh, and it was like, wow, this is a cool room, for like a little clean room for the uh, all air conditioned and everything. So you went from this place where they had presses and the smell of molten lead and the guys with the leather visors, yeah. you know, um, putting uh, galleys of this type together for this thing. And all of a sudden you go into this other space age thing at the time. Yeah. And uh, and it was just fascinating seeing that, transet, that transition. And uh, when I was doing the computer stuff, I got pretty, pretty good at setting up the systems and understanding it. And uh, one time I decided, you know, I, I used to have to wait really late at night for horse race results or something to come in and I got a little bored so I said oh, I'm going to try something with this computer system so I I did this uh, uh, command line kind of command thing where I was able to, to see everybody's files in the entire system so I was like an early hacker I think you know uh, but it was it was just curiosity more than anything and uh, so I said wow I can actually see everybody's file but you know it'd be nice more than just to see the file maybe I want to see what's in the file so there's this thing called an expanded directory and I applied that to the entire database in the in the system they didn't expect anybody to ever try to do that so here we are just b before the deadline to put out the newspaper and they used to have these lights that would tell you when the system was unstable and i crashed the whole system <laughs> and basically uh, delayed the output of the portland press herald for a few hours that that particular day and uh so i quickly unplugged my terminal and went uh whoops whoops yeah well, the next day, the uh, head uh, computer guy was in. He and I were taking an elevator ride together, and he kind of looked at me after the elevator door closed. He said, "I know what you did last night." <laughs> he said, "You won't be able to do it again." You know, he says, "We we fixed that little thing so nobody could ever do it again." He says, "And, and by the way, that was a pretty good move." Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's great. you know, he kind of smiled. And uh, you fast forward to years later, and uh, when the internet was around, just starting to come around, um, and uh, you know, I was. I was actually going to the University of Southern Maine and was involved uh, with some of the mainframe uh, work there for uh, what I was doing for a degree at the time. And um, the I was working uh, on a bulk, basically bulletin boards when, when the Internet first came out. Right, right. So HTML1, basically, was the first programming language that was a web-based uh, mosaic browser could could hit on it and you could actually see things like pictures and all right. that and, um, and and set all the type well I was starting to program in it and all of a sudden I was like wow I, somehow I feel like I already know this because of the way the commands were the command structure in it and uh, the syntax basically and all of a sudden I realized that that Waterloo script that I learned decades before was basically the same syntax you know for, for setting um, bold head types and on a system with the old old days it was the same exact thing, only it was, you know, like in the HTML language. Oh, wow. So all of a sudden I could do web pages without even learning it. It was, wow. it was just there. Isn't so, that great? And I was, you know, doing that in, uh, so very early. Would that have been mid-90s? 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I think we plugged into the internet here yeah. in 1996, mm-hmm. and it was around for a couple of years yeah. before that. I think I, I, um, I don't remember the count on the websites, but it was it was like in the thousands in Maine at the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And ironically, years later, when I was, uh, uh, I ended up uh, becoming a business partner with Ken Blaze. Uh, he was kind of living sort of a parallel path in mid-coast Maine and doing some stuff uh, early on with that as well, uh, which is kind of weird that we were in completely different places and then <laughs> and we ended up becoming business partners with this kind of uh, you well, know, say, stuff. So say more about that. Take us there. So you and how did you and Ken uh, get together and is the first, is your first uh, thing that you did DigiArc? Um, no, DigiArc was not the first thing right. that I did. Um, I basically, uh, I started uh, uh, kind of winging it when I was, uh, I had uh, had some wild times in my mid-20s. I kind of crashed and burned after I was on the fast path. I think I just thought that, hey, you know, I got this really sweet job in the Press Herald. You know, I can do this again, no problem, even though I didn't have a college degree or anything at the time. Um, and so a bunch of buddies said, hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to go to Florida this weekend. Yeah, we're we don't want to spend another winter in Maine. What do you think? And I was like, well, sounds great. So I gave my two-week notice, and everybody thought it was absolutely insane because at the time was, uh, I think we were going into a recession or something at the time. Um, and all the all the people who were wise around me, all the, uh, what, are you crazy? You, you've got a, a great position here. What job. are you doing? You know, yeah. great job, security, you know. And uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go sow some wild oats, basically with my buds. And... Uh, and so that didn't turn out so well. Uh, I ended up uh, working construction in the middle of the summer down in Florida when the money ran out. Sure. And uh, but came back home eventually, and and uh, so I went back to school. Um, uh, you know, after being out of school for five six years, because I did have a couple semesters when, yeah. when it was University of Maine Portland Gorham. Yeah. And when I came back, it had turned at University of Southern Maine. Well, what, so that experience, which you characterize as that didn't work out so good, right. it did, though, launch you into the next chapter. You decided yeah, I did. to go to school. Well, I, I found that necessity is, is a great way of applying some Isn't of these it? things, right? So, yeah. Um, so I started, um, you know, in, in some ways, I, uh, my, my undergraduate degree, I, I picked up a, the college catalog, and I looked at various things, and you know, and it all seemed like, wow, you know, how do I choose? This is like getting a candy store. Yeah. But one thing that kind of resonated with me at the time was the uh, uh, communication department at the University of uh, Southern Maine and the, their approach at um, communication events. You know, um, they really, it's not communication as in let's uh, become a radio announcer, although they, you could do that, right? It's more, uh, you, you could do a very academic track with it and understand uh, communication theory and all at the time. And and I, I read it. it sounds fantastic. So I, I did it, and I, I loved it. I absolutely. But you know, I had to work my way through that degree. So I was on almost like the seven or eight year program to get through it because sure. I had to work my way through it. Sure. But um, so when I was there, and you know, at this time I had uh, a, a, a young family um, happening, and um, so I had to scramble, and so so I was driving a limousine um, at one point. Um, Doing some swinging a hammer, doing construction, um, you know, just anything to, fill to tie, fill it all yeah, in, sure, right? And sure. then, and then I uh, started working a lot of sort of like work study jobs at the university and got exposed to some different things there. And uh, so, the the fact that I had some computer background also came to play in that. Uh, at the time, 
uh, you know, micro the IBM clones, which uh, a lot of people famously made billions of dollars on that opportunity. Um, and I couldn't afford to get an Apple computer, and I, there was a lot of stuff in my degree program that I really could have used the, the word processing power and all that stuff as well. And uh, decided, you know what, I, I think I'm gonna try to build my own IBM clone. And I started doing that and I realized, wow, the architecture in these computers reminded me so much of the Portland Press Herald. You know, because it, it, you look at the computer and the, or the architecture of it from a software perspective, and there's the print spool. And, uh, well, you know what? That used to be actually a little corner of a room where yes. you, 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 when you yeah. went, went there and you printed something, you walk, walked over to this area that was the print spooler, right? Right. And uh, and so the CPU, which was a big standing, Main took frame. up half of a room, right? Yeah. Um, and so the the logic behind that um, kind of operating system and, and the actual physical architecture made a lot of sense to me. So I, I took to it and I started uh, doing a little bit of. Uh, I built a system very very inexpect. Uh, inexpensively. You're talking about like with parts yeah. from Radio Shack? No, whatever? I'm talking um, just uh, component parts. So there was a company, Leading Edge Computer. Yeah. So they, they would have like a dual floppy drive thing. And it, of course, that's not going to be functional for a lot of things. So I'd go out and get, wow, when you got a 10 megabyte hard drive, it was really something else. And yes. expensive too, right? So you get 20, and it went 20, 30, 40 megabytes kind of thing. So I was building that out, beefing up some of the processing power, you know, and then adding uh, the peripherals to it to make it a functioning business system. And uh, someone saw me do this for somebody and said, well, can you do that for me too? And I said, well, sure. And so at the time I was doing some uh, contract work for the Chamber of Commerce in Portland. And uh, so I had people who were c catching up to that. And I actually at the time was a ass assistant director for the Deering Oaks Festival as a contract employee there, uh, independent contractor. And uh, I built one for the then director of that, and all of a sudden, people all over the place started wanting me to do that. So I said, "Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I get a little, uh, I'm, might as well turn a few dollars here." And so I started building these systems for people, um, and that was kind of a thing. And then uh, I opened up my mouth to uh, this wonderful woman, Shirley Jacks, who ran the uh, Chamber Publication of Portland Monthly, it was called. And uh, I'm sorry, it was Great Portland Magazine, was was what it was. And uh, so uh, she uh, was having a problem with her. Um, computer system for her her uh, subscriptions and all of that and I said something well want me to take a look at it and so I sat down and I realized it was in some kind of real uh, kind of bastard programming language that was an early uh, kind of thing and I said well it's gonna take some doing but I'll somehow I'll, I'll monkey this around so I used some shareware uh, database programs at the time and and massaged all the data out and all of a sudden for the first time in three or four years they were able to put out actually build people for their <laughs> the magazines that they've been <laughs> shipping right and so that was kind of shit. and then uh, as I was talking to her working next to her I, I made some comment about uh, the person at the time that was doing the uh, the writing for uh, restaurant reviews in the Portland Press Herald and I thought he was being a jerk to all these restaurants you know it's like so uh, I said you know someone ought to write something where they they actually get into why somebody started a restaurant or why they're working why they own a restaurant and what what they like about it and maybe uh, get a couple of their favorite recipes and then print that up because I think you can say something positive about anybody that's doing something like that and she goes you know that's a great idea you're my new food writer so all of a sudden I was bylined uh, you know uh, with that and then I started doing some uh, bylines uh, writing for a couple of the um, I did like uh, the the foods of Greater Portland for the Chamber publications. So you do all this business-oriented stuff and pump up all their members, right? 
and uh, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, early early uh, uh, article on, I think we called it the uh, C two revolution, which was communication and computers, and uh, and it's some of the early graphics that were being done by like, some of the what people. What year are we talking about now? Oh, it, that would have had to been. Um, 86 maybe okay yeah. there yeah um, and so that was kind of I had all these different things going right and it, and it was all me just pushing out and using some of the skills and stuff that I picked up over the years and contract work and right? contract work yeah. and so um, that's kind of uh, you know so that's when the, I first my hung my first my first shingle I guess I called myself CLJ Enterprises for my initials and uh, and so I just tied it whatever I could you know I was having fun. You basically. were in the gig yeah. economy before people called it the gig. I economy. guess so, yeah. yeah. And, and that's all out of necessity because I I, I had the good fortune of of, uh, of coming out of, of my degree in the late '80s when some of the you know the the interest rates and the economy was suffering a little bit at the time. So every time I made a change in my life and I tried to find a job, it was. You know, unemployment was 11, 12 percent, or yes. something like that. Yeah. And so, I guess you, you got to survive. You can figure <laughs> out something to do. So I, I call it the good fortune because I think it really uh, made me think uh, differently about uh, how I could apply myself, and I had fun doing it at the time. At the time, very stressful as well. Obviously, if you sure, if, if you're married, doing your own thing, kids, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was a lot of fun doing that. So that's that's kind of where I, I started that, and then uh, my first marriage. Uh, uh, we uh, she started doing something that was uh, called a house pin, uh, and so I kind of uh, decided that I only had so much time in the day, and I was and you know, I was going to get involved in that with her and we, because it was kind of a neat concept where it was very early on kind of merchandising, um, fundraising for for nonprofits, which uh, nobody was doing. And the first the first item was a called a house pin that raised money for for. Um, homeless agencies around the country and uh, so I helped I applied my some of my marketing skills to that and did some of the marketing around that and then when it started actually taking off I had to apply a lot of my other kind of more technical skills so I started doing uh, learning a lot about um, you know materials fabrication compute uh, laser lasers um, you know coatings pigments stuff like that so uh, and that went pretty well for a while. We built that up to a, a company that had over 100 employees at one point in time. Wow. And, wow. Uh, you know, so then and as personal relationships go, we went our separate ways. Uh, at that, some, And so this kind of leads us to the to the uh, DigArc um, chapter you were, were asking about. And uh, How did you guys uh, meet? So um, I was a guy that was involved in a lot of other things. While I, yeah. I, I was uh, through the chamber, I, I, I really... Um, Got met some interesting people who were really trying to uh, uh, create a good business environment, not only in Portland but in the state, yeah. uh, state of Maine at the time. And so I got involved with some of those groups and some of those people, and, and uh, um, you know, so policy wonks type of people, yeah. and some of these things. And one of those uh, fellows uh, that I met um, knew Ken, Ken Blaze, who became my business partner eventually. And so. Um, I got this call uh, one day because you know I had developed a kind of a reputation of a, of a guy that could do, do business pretty well, and so he says this guy um, is in a, in a tough situation and uh, uh, would like to look at you as a possible investor in this this uh, technology company that he's involved in. And I said, well, I'll go take a look at what they were doing, and um, 
uh, I think the uh, name of the company, I think it was Intelligent Learning Corporation, which was a kind of a pseudo-public-private kind of enterprise at the time. And they had put together actually something that was uh, way ahead of its time, and that's probably why it didn't fly, because the market wasn't ready for it. Uh, and it was also the regulatory agencies in higher education weren't ready for it. And they were trying to do a front-to-back, um, and Ken would probably be more eloquent in describing this, but from my investing perspective, they were trying to do a front-to-back uh, kind of online learning uh, enterprise. And this was in 2000, and, oh, they must have started development in 1999 or 2000, right? right. And they, they put a, a lot of money into it from uh, you know public and private sourcing uh, to develop the software. So they did early versions of Blackboard, which some people might be familiar with as a pretty big company and now. And would this have been for post-secondary? For post-secondary education, yeah. right? Yeah. So it, and it was came out of a, the good intent of trying to create access uh, for more rural students to right. get higher education. Right? Right. Well, the problem was all these un universities didn't want to have anything to do with it. Right. They, they, were, they were all bricks and mortar. And so there was no way to get accreditation yes. uh, for uh, an institution at the time. Uh, and so, but I, I was just blown away by the, the uh, their ability to do it. And what was really cool about it is they, they were doing a technology that was all driven over the internet at the time. And if you imagine, uh, before broadband, yeah. um, the challenges that were involved with trying to do a uh, what we would know, have been called web-enabled applications. Yes, um, you didn't install it on your computer; you hit it with a browser. And and doing a actual learning environment in right around 2000, 2001, and with the challenges of that, or even just doing word processing, was, looking at the time was really difficult. Was it dial-up? Well, I think some people probably still had dial-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but. Uh, so that's where we first met, and I, I declined to get involved with it, and it's a whole other story <laughs> yeah. in itself. But and uh, but we we hit it off, and uh, I really admired his uh, his team that he put together and um, and what they had generated, and it was a real shame that somehow or another that didn't work. But you know these things happen, and some things fly, some things don't. Especially if you're early. Yeah, especially if you're early. Yeah. And so um, you know we we have lunch every now and then. To, just stay connected and, and whatnot. And one day I, I got a, a phone call from him saying that he had uh, he'd kept a couple of those engineers busy um, and they were working on this little little side project that had nothing to do with the original software that they were working with. Um, and um, they were working with a guy by the name of John Beacon in the University of Maine in Orono and who was a very forward-looking guy. Uh, and they were trying to solve some problems around doing their course catalog. And... Uh, so at the time uh, when the internet started really cranking up here, um, so now you're probably, you know, you're looking at uh, 2001, 2002, something like that, that the universities were having a lot of heartburn because uh, all the individual departments were, you know, cramming their, their portions of the catalog online. It was never able to keep it currently up to date. Uh, there was no way, if, if something changed in a, in a uh, course, then there was no way to really tie that all together. Um, and so uh, the, accrediting, the accrediting bodies uh, that say, okay, your accreditation is at risk if you don't get all this information correct, uh, was put pressure on them as well to straighten it up. And so they were getting to the point where they actually, on a yearly basis, had to have somebody to try to input their entire course catalog, which the lag time on that was such as that, you know, <laughs> you're probably enrolling the next year's students sure by the are. time you get there. So uh, he uh, came up with a, a solution for John Beacon and did some development work for him that originally became uh, what then be, was uh, he uh, called Acalog 
for academic catalog right. uh, online. Right. And it was that same technology of doing a web-enabled application. There was no such thing as cloud computing at the time. Right. Uh, and so um, the guy that was the, the lead programmer uh, was a former military guy that was familiar with the PHP programming and, and did a really remarkable job at a very bare-bones um, kind of uh, uh, piece of software that worked well. Well, you know, that really seemed to hit a, a nerve or a, a, a potential market. And that's about the time that, that he called me because, he, you know, he needed some, you know, investment and some um, kind of like, let's see if we can get over this. Yes. And uh, and I'm a kind of guy that I, I just don't write checks, you know. I'm very, I like to be hands-on and, sure. and that stuff. And, sure. and, and uh, he'd come from kind of the world where the dot-com, dot-bomb world yeah. You know, where everything was, you know, if anybody had any idea at all that was sexy, they, they thought it was worth a million dollars, yes. right? And yeah. yet their actual um, profit, um, you know, plan didn't exist. You know, right. it, well, when are you going to make a profit? When are you going to have a margin? Well, it, it, you know, it's the idea that's worth the money. Right. So we don't have to make a profit, right? We're going to just roll this up as an idea and then sell it to somebody else who will then make the profit there out was of a lot so of that going on yeah. a lot of that well when the, when the house of cards fell remember what happened right yeah and so he he had uh, been burned by uh, that and so he was uh, i think uh, attracted to the fact that i had more of you know i had a manufacturing at the time background manufacturing company we had over 100 people working and um and he said you know what um he liked my kind of old school approach a little bit because he'd been burned by this all hat no cattle kind of approach uh, for a while and the people who got all the money and spent it on the big penthouses but had all this vaporware that you know wasn't actually solving any problems so we 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 uh made an agreement uh, i came on board and I, it was more of an advisory role at the time to try to guide them through some of the early marketing um in uh, setting up the business model and uh and then kind of uh, keeping the doors open and the people paid for you know we only had one or two employees uh and then scaling this thing up very organically over time and, uh, and you, you had a sense fairly early on that if the digital catalog at the Acalog could work for University of Maine, it could work for other uh, customers as well. Yeah, I think that uh, the big debate at the time between Ken and I, because you know he and his uh, the other partner involved was the programmer. Um, he they were they had in their mind uh, shrink wrap software somebody was going to go right. buy an acalog off the shelf right and and i didn't see the model as being viable because there's not enough you know there's no return you know for that and and the support that would go into that and all that so i i saw it more as a software as a services model um and um at the, at the beginning of that and we had some discussion over that and he said well you know i think that's probably a good way to go and so it also had the advantage of having um, all the software exist in a code base on one computer at the time, one server, you know, meant that when you upgraded the software, that you upgraded it and everybody using it got used to that software. You didn't have to go to, to somebody's, uh, all the different types of, right. uh, of systems that people would put this on and be an expert in every one of the operating systems and, and all that. It was just, it would have been cumbersome to get off the ground. So really the whole... Um, distributed application model was just uh, fantastic for um, being able to ramp up and and, um, and uh, develop good software and so I think that helped a lot in getting uh, it out to um, say okay 
the, the fact that when we had this policy at the time, which when investors down the road came on board, they thought it was kind of crazy, but we built a brand around it, is that you, you licensed from us and you got, you got upgrades to the software in, in perpetuity from it. You know? uh, some of that was naive on our part, but we also felt, you know, hey, you know what, we're, we're not going to try to nick you every time we improve it, the product every time. So um, they, uh, um, I think a lot of people appreciated that. And they, they were able, early adopters were just amazed at how much we were putting into uh, our products and our services to, to create a good experience for them. So, so for example, talk to, just say more about if you had a potential customer, uh, let's say it was a college or university, and would they have at that point had a paper catalog, a course catalog? Yeah, they would have. They would have paper catalogs. Uh, a lot of them would say when we when we did uh, when we first started this out, it was very difficult because people we had to kind of educate the the client. Yeah. It wasn't sales; it was educational. Yeah. To, ironically, to higher education, and it's it really kind of uh, surprised us that these these institutions that were teaching computer programming um, had no clue about it in terms of their own operations. Right. Thing. Right. Um, and so. You know, the uh, a lot of them would talk to them and they'd say, "Oh, I we have our catalog online. We have PDFs." You're right. And we're like, uh, "Well, imagine, a, you know, a student, especially as time went on, um, the younger students were expecting a different experience yeah. uh, when they went to look at, you know, possible programs or courses of study, and uh, and waiting through a on slow internet, particularly a 400-page PDF to figure out that out, or if you're actually enrolled in a school and trying to." You know, so what am I going to take here and, and go through that process? Um, it was very cumbersome. So um, we had to kind of show them, well, yeah, that's good. Now, how did you get the PDF online, right? And, you know, and, and, and how timely was that experience, right? And, and the whole uh, thing about the administrative part of our software was is that it, it allowed for a workflow for every, all the stakeholders that were involved in approving certain changes to the catalog. Um, could could go through that process and that it existed in one place and uh, so that uh, really that the efficiency of that was was very attractive once we started getting people to understand that and uh, all of a sudden um, these people and the catalog uh, really uh, most of the time is in the registrar's offices who's responsible for it right and uh, and they're pretty harried enough as it is so when all of a sudden they realize wow this, for the first time we actually got our catalog published on time they were like blown away right, that this thing actually does pretty good work for them so you know build a better mousetrap and some, sometimes you know people find it so we did a good job at getting out to uh, some of the uh, the uh, higher education trade shows and stuff like that to, to network and you know it was very very rudimentary software in the beginning and but we improved it um, continually so I mean you were early but unlike Ken's prior thing you weren't too early so you were you were educating, you were helping them to learn. You just yeah. said it was rudimentary, but yeah. actually at that point, it, it probably didn't need to be a heck of a lot more than that. Yeah. It's funny, the market pushes you, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we showed them a better way to do it, and it's like they get used to that really quickly. You know? <laughs> and they go, well, why can't it do this too? <laughs> so, so when did you personally realize, oh, actually, I started out by being an investor, an advisor, and I kind of helped out with some of my my business knowledge when did you realize holy smokes we got a tiger by the tail here um i don't know if there was like an epiphany moment in that yeah i just it was exciting when 
you got a new client. I mean, to me, the part of the jazz of being in business is when you you establish that relationship, and then they're happy, and uh, and and so I think as the the customer base grew, and we we get together and say, oh, now we now we have ten, now yeah. we have twenty, now yeah. we have you know fifty, whatever. It, it, every one of those milestones, it was just a a, a wonderful, um, rewarding experience, and the fact that we could uh, take some of those. Uh, you know the profits from the, the business model, and then reinvest into the development of the company and the product and the services. It was just a wonderful organic feeling. And did you have uh, competitors by that time? Um, we had uh, uh, few direct competitors in terms of the business model that we're yeah. using. Yeah. But uh, you know, you've really come on a good idea when all of a sudden people start copying it, right? And so we had a couple of people who were coming from the publishing end of that, and they couldn't believe one point uh, we'll go out I won't name the actual uh, company but this is the in a generic story of this is that we we thought one of these people who were involved a long time in doing the print catalogs and from a publishing perspective a very printing oriented perspective might be interested in our software and distributing it right? yeah and uh, and had this uh, conversation the, the person didn't see the value of our business model and said well actually I could see just buying that one it would help us do the catalog for everybody but it wasn't empowering any of their clients. She wanted to be the one doing the actual work. So uh, we kind of went, well, okay, she doesn't quite get the model, business model here. But then eventually uh, that person went and got a, a generic uh, content management system yeah. and tried to tailor that yeah. to try to do something like what we were doing. Yeah. And also did a lot of low ball um, you know, sales against us. Um, and by but, then that, the market was getting educated and the market wanted what you had by then. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. So at some point, you and Ken moved the business to Florida. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I think a, a lot of that is better better uh, uh, told by Ken, but I'll, I'll give you uh, kind of a, a high-level version sure, of that. Sure, sure. Because it was a lot, there was a, as these things go, a lot of it is personal in nature, right, in terms of where you want to be. And um, But uh, Ken decided that he wanted to uh, uh, move from um, the state of Maine to Florida. At the time, uh, a lot of his, uh, he was doing, he's basically chief technology officer slash co, he's the president of the, of the company and he, and he handled uh, everything uh, from a procedural perspective and that end of things and, and also guided the professional services development and all of that. Um, and of course the software development um, as well as the infrastructure uh, issues around keeping the servers from crashing and all that as we're starting to grow. Um, and so, I was uh, more the administration, sales and marketing um, kind of end of things. and um, so, But we kind of did a lot of, you know, kind of co-teamed everything. You sure. Know? We, we sure. shared on every, a lot of these major decisions. So he decided, uh, and his wife was originally from Florida, to move down to uh, the Florida area. And uh, of all places, landed up in Lakeland, Florida, uh, with the idea being that it was close enough to both Tampa and Orlando to... to rely on those labor maybe some technology people down in that area um, and uh, I remained with the sales and marketing and the um, um, the administration up in here up in the Portland area Portland Maine area so uh, the that was probably uh, somewhere in 2004 something like that so we were in it in portions like that well I ended up spending a lot of time on an airplane back and forth from Florida and living in cheap hotels along the uh, I-4 corridor there. Yeah. And, and uh, so at one point in time, I was really uh, anticipating uh, 
trying to find a condo or something to take some of the sting out of that. Uh, and at that time, all of a sudden, uh, my, my current wife and I were, were uh, together, and, uh, and we said, you know what? The, the wind, it's like all the planets lined up in our lives. And said, this would be a really good move for us right now. Let's just go ahead and do it. Let's just pack it up and go. Great. And so we took the big risk, in which a lot of people thought were, were nuts. And so we moved uh, the rest of the business down with us in uh, 2012. Uh, down to uh, Florida, and so we became wholly operational uh, as a Florida corporation. Yeah, uh, you know it's interesting, Chet. I don't think as long as I've known you, I don't think I knew that you and Ken operated uh, remotely for it sounds like six or eight years. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's hard duty. Yeah, it was again. We by necessity we were always ahead of time because we're doing like the Zoom thing. Yeah, um, we were, yeah. we were having our technology people cobble together stuff like that yeah. very early on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it was kind of, it worked, you know, I mean, it, it, we saw, you know, like people now have, are discovering that there's both, you know, good things about that. And there's things that you make it difficult to create a cohesive organization, depending yeah. on the size of the organization. So there's some challenges with that as well, which is why we were really happy to, to finally consolidate things because we had a lot of people who were working kind of remotely at various point in time, um, in the company and, Sometimes it worked really well, and sometimes it was a challenge depending on what the needs of the company were. So you and Ken were partners um, for a long time together, and you know it's sort of axiomatic in entrepreneurs listening to this podcast or people who've uh, studied business or gone to business school know that you know one of the keys to success is in an organization is role R O L E clarity, role clarity. Mm -hmm. Yet you two guys were sort of side by side. How did you keep it squared away in the team's mind about what the role clarity was? I, th I think it's just a, a clarity on what issues get escalated to who, right? And there's times in which they know that it was the Ken and Chet show that, that you know, this is, this is something that uh, we're going to deal with as a team. And we tried to take that approach, I think, with a lot of our, um, especially when we're talking about sales and marketing. And Ken pretty much... Uh, you know, again, the separation of, of things where he, he uh, kept the trains running on time in terms of physical plant kind of issues as well, but also you know the, the technology end of things, and he was the go-to guy uh, for certain things around the professional services because you talk about technical stuff in terms of how things are are, are put together in a catalog, and he had that's a Ken yeah, question. That's a Ken question, right? Yeah. And so, um, and then and, and I think I played he I guess in a, in a kind of a broad brush way he's a much more tactical guy as well as strategic and i was much more strategic guy as well as sometimes tactical i see and so um and uh depending on what was going on at the time and the needs of the business but um it, it was kind of an interesting evolution because he and i um, we were business partners for what, 16 years before we exited the business and in that time he and i never had a raised our voice or had an angry word at each other in all that time and we had some times that we we didn't see a solution to a problem the same way and we'd we'd uh would argue that out in a in a very you know respectful way and and then one of us or, or the other of us would say well i'm gonna let this one jaws this time let's go that way you know yeah. if we didn't see that was rare most of the time we were of the mind after a few years where we could finish each other's sentences basically you know it was really remarkable how similar uh we ended up in similar places maybe in a different way but we ended up in similar um uh, with similar solutions almost independently sometimes um 
So I think that's that was just a dumb luck in some ways that you to run into somebody like that that, that uh, our temperaments matched, and our and our our life experiences were were similar, and we had uh, just uh, simpatico in so many different ways. And uh, also, I think more important than anything, we had a, an idea of what it meant for to have a a, a all the stakeholders in the business. So we, we had an idea of what it meant to be. Uh, responsibility of your customers uh, we had an idea of what it meant to have a relationship uh, with your employees and uh, what was uh, that kind of the ethic of the company uh, we we were completely in alignment with just by our natures so you know the whole idea we had sort of a early on we were trying to do I guess what would have called in in, in the in the uh, corporate world as a, a mission statement right but we didn't think of it that way we just said you know what when we get somebody involved in this team, they have to understand what, what we expect from them, you know, and, and, and uh, we want to have accountability. We want to have mutual respect. We want the whole golden rule kind of stuff. It's, it sounds trite when you say it out loud, but when you live it, it's actually kind of a neat thing to see it uh, come together. Uh, when people have created an environment by their nature um, that they really like and, and they create a whole vibe. And so I think that was the core of what became Digiarc, is that, um, that people really uh, realized that, that Ken and I cared about everybody and that we want, we want to do the right thing by everybody involved in that. And uh, so I think by little tiny decisions every day over a long period of time that proved that out, I think we created quite a, a, an amazing organization. So take me, so just remind me, 2012, 2013, you moved to Florida. You brought the rest of the team together. Mm-hmm. That must have been you know, a sort of energizing time when that happened. Mm-hmm. How, do you remember how big would digital architecture, DigiArc, have been at that time? Well, uh, there was just a little tiny um, office with maybe three or four offices originally. Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, would you have had 50 customers? We had some of, we had some of the, uh, yeah, I would say probably 50, 75, something yeah. like that, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the professional services started growing as, a, uh, as the business grew in order, because what we had, we had professional services which, which did the implementation. In other words, it took their, we had to kind of create what was a narrative form in their catalog and turn it into a, a real rational database. Um, and that was a process, and, and um, so we had our special technicians that went through the process of doing that, um, and so that created uh, that that took space and people and abilities uh, as we started growing, and especially when the, when the volume started growing to do that. And did you guys have it in your mind in 2012-13 that someday we want to have a capital gain? No. And so, how no. did that arise? In your mind, because I remember early on being with you and Ken, and actually in this room, I think I was in that chair, and you may have been in this chair, but I was having the fun of discovering that the two of you sort of had this destination in mind, and it seemed to me Mm -hmm. like it was really the two of you. Yeah, Um, I think it's one of those innate things that you know, at some point in time, by doing the right thing and uh, in a naive way. That you're gonna by building a good company, you're gonna create a valuable company. What uh, I had this experience um, when I was uh, doing the manufacturing company of, of meeting a, a fellow, um, 
I can't remember his last name, but his name was Benny, I think. Uh, and he had, was a, an employee for National Semiconductor that had come up with a pretty cool program that was providing value to some of the vendors in the semiconductor industry and was able to uh, you know, build a, a fledgling company and then exit rather quickly, actually, at the time. And, uh, and I met him at some business you know, function. And uh, so he and I were you know, in proximity. So I, I said, I asked him a question. I go, uh, you know, really fantastic story that you have. And I really, from the technology that he was using at the time, I was really fascinated by that aspect of it. But then I said, you know, I'm really curious, man, now that you've had that experience, what, what would you have done differently when you ran the business, when you built the business? And it took him back for a second. He said, wow, that's, pretty, that's a pretty uh, good question. And he thought for about it for a minute or two, and he says, you know what? I think that what I would do is I, I, I would have an imaginary person at the table of every, dis, every business decision that gets made in the company, particularly strategic ones, um, and have this imaginary person at the table, which is always going to ask the question, how does this impact the value of the company? And, and how does it you know, benefit the company? Because sometimes a short-term decision is not necessarily create an overall value in the company and uh which i come to you know after uh hooking up with bigelow i saw the wisdom of that even more yeah, i, I was gonna it, say i wish benny was uh, here he yeah. could have been a bigelow by asking yeah, that question right. so many times we're asking our clients yeah. i did this this week actually mm-hmm. chet like when you get through this decision that your management team is making just explain to me how it affects enterprise value just good bad indifferent exactly. you probably have yeah. good reasons for it but yeah. i just think someone ought to ask that question yeah so, and I think that just running a good balance sheet adds a lot of that. But there are, you know, as I, you don't know what, it, what you don't know until you go through an experience. And, and working with Bigelow showed me and in, in, uh, in, in Rob McLeod uh, when we started digging deep into uh, what creates value for a prospective investor, I realized, wow, you know, some of those decisions weren't, um, they created a value from a economic point of view in the company in terms of uh, sales and margin all that stuff but actually there's some other decisions that could have been made that would actually have been made the company a stronger company uh, or from an investment point of view and that was that surprised me because I, I would have just thought uh, in a simplistic way is you make money it makes a certain amount of money then that's got to add value to the company uh, and it does obviously you don't want to buy a company that's losing money <laughs> But there's an awful lot of other things yeah. that can add some pretty significant value to the company. And I, that's, I think, something that um, if I were to, to talk to somebody that was on that path of creating that value, I'd say um, try to find some expertise uh, to guide you. Um, you know, is it, is it the only thing you should be thinking about? No, because I think that, that may be not appropriate in certain situations to have that be a dominant dynamic in your business path. But I think it should always be part of your awareness if you have the goal at some point in time of, of exiting that should be definitely part of your goal structure so so some entrepreneur owner managers who are listening to this chat have in their minds that they um, have a destination that they want to have a capital gain because they feel like they have another chapter they want to go do something else just mm-hmm. to be silly maybe they want to jump on a boat and go sail around the world okay right. some of those people have that mm-hmm. Some people have it in their minds that they want to have a new investor because they've taken it as far as they feel that they personally can. Right. And, and so they must feel that 
this business plan still has a long ways to go, but I've taken it as far as I can right. take it. And, and some of them um, have it in their minds that they want to access a new owner because they need something. They need capital, they need talent, they need something. How, do you, how did you and Ken think about that? Well, you know, because we, we uh, again, when you build a strong company and you're, you're perceived in the marketplace all of a sudden, you become a player in the marketplace, so you, you start getting attention just yes. by nature of it. And so we were getting a lot of that attention. And but we were like always, for better or worse, we were one. We were one to not want to take debt, additional debt on a company to, to to grow it. And that in some situations is good. And as I've come to learn as I got older, sometimes it's not entirely good for creating a scaling a company. Sometimes you need to have that debt. But we were old school. We wanted to you know keep it debt free, and I think there was a lot of benefits to that for us personally. But uh, when we started looking at um, uh, early on, before even contacting uh, or l researching who would be a good uh, resource for us to bring this thing to market, um, that we, we had conversations around the line, around the um, uh, topics of, man, uh, we're, we're struggling on, because it's uh, business development. Uh, 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 I'm going to take a little side trip here. I had a uh, friend many years ago as I was going through scaling my first business that used to tell me that he had this this kind of imagery around what it was like to build a business he says and he says what you do is you picture a little man coming up to a set of stairs and he struggles like heck to get up on that first stair and then and he's, he finally makes it up on that first stair and he's walking along the stair and he's saying wow I finally made it and then all of a sudden wham he runs into the next stair <laughs> And he's got to climb over that one. And I think that's kind of a, a good analogy of, of what happens. And so we were kind of at some top stairs in the situation and realized, wow, we, we have to really double down in order to, to meet the demands of what the market is telling us is happening. So, so and, just, uh, and, I want to just explain. Yeah. So when you say that, I think you mean the demand for your services and your software is so great that you and Ken felt like you actually need to, when you say double down, you mean double down on... Maybe your financial investment, maybe your time, your talent. Uh, the short answer to that is yes, yes all the above. All the above. Um, and and so, I think what it meant for us is we did sort of a, a, a you know a gut check. And Ken and I thought similarly in a lot of different ways of how we we always used to do um, some of our financial planning and stuff. We always did Armageddon scenarios all yeah. the time, you know, yeah. uh, and things like that. But uh, when we looked at um, what we what we actually thought the market was telling us, and what was strange is when we came to Bigelow finally, and, and we did some market research, we found that we were sensing it, but actually we were sensing maybe a two foot wave, and when actually it was a, a tsunami coming, you know, yes. and uh, and so that of demand, it, it, yeah, of demand of, of what the green field, uh, yeah. you know, the potential of meeting in the market was, and if we didn't do it, somebody else was going to do it, yeah. and really rapidly. So there was an urgency around us. Uh, there was, a, from an organizational point of view, you realize that, um, you know, we we had to build in a middle, more of a middle management uh, kind of layer in, um, and and uh, that was a skill set area that Ken and I didn't feel like we were deep in, and uh, and said, you know, you can make a lot of mistakes in that. Some of the business model stuff, we were really saying, you know, I wish somebody could bring some expertise to the table on some of this stuff. So we, we kind of knew what we knew and what we didn't know, yeah. and what where the risk was of that and realized that from a knowledge point of view um, that it would be nice to have somebody been there done it kind of even though sometimes that isn't 
totally applicable, it's nice to have those data points to, to start thinking about. And so that was part of it. Um, and then we started realizing from uh, some of the technical um, aspects of the software uh, and looking at next stages on that, if you can start really spending that kind of money on development, that you know you, you might want to really think whether or not you're being forward-looking on what where that investment's going. And you know we didn't have the skill sets there either. So I think from a knowledge-based perspective, we were looking for uh, that. And I think that was one of the major drivers and being scared to death that we were going to get swamped by some sales. Uh, that motivated us to look at it. And then I think uh, we got to a point which I think a lot of uh, people that, that start building value in a company get to is that we, you start looking at what you think, even though you really don't have a clue until you have experts do any kind of valuation. Because I had a, a lawyer friend of mine used to tell me that, that you could get a witch doctor and, and a, a, uh, you know, a, a voodoo guy and, and, a, and you know, a fortune teller around a, a steaming cauldron, and uh, they, they would all come up with different valuation uh, depending on what the needs of the, at the time were. But still, as a business guy, you, I think everybody has that number in the back of their head, what they think it might be worth, right? And so Ken and I were looking at that and realizing that we had an awful lot of eggs in one basket, and we'd, built, we'd worked a long, long time. Uh, to create that value and is it smart for us to have all of our value in one basket and maybe this is the time when investment makes a big sense for and so all of these things kind of converged you know needs of the business uh, what we saw the potential for the business was to meet the market um, and also personally that wow you know this is this might be the time to start thinking about diversifying ourselves um, and and not having all of our future in one business entity so so when when did we do that transaction what year is that 2017, I believe. Yeah. And so uh, you have the, I think listeners to the podcast are going to feel like you have this unusual point of view, which is you built, you guys built the business together and had fun and, and uh, created a tremendously valuable business in doing that. Valuable not only for yourselves, but also for all the stakeholders, including the customers, really. You changed the, the whole customer model. But more, maybe as importantly, or more importantly for listeners today, you actually have been through it for five years, mm -hmm. and if and you've been through another recapitalization transaction, and so you have the unusual education and ability, the learning, mm -hmm. uh, maybe some unlearning, of <laughs> of uh, being a minority stockholder and a board member, right, or uh, for the last five years with Correct. a private equity majority owner. Correct, and. With your help and with your encouragement, the private equity owner brought on additional resources, management team, et cetera, and now you've kind of done it again. And my understanding is now you're out. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Yep. So, so give me some reflection on on what's it like to be a entrepreneur, owner, manager who is a minority owner with a private equity firm of the business that you ran for twenty years. You try not to uh, apply. Uh, your own experience and, and broad, broad brush that to everybody's experience is going to be the same as yours in the in that kind of thing because I think there's a lot um, it can be quite different you know depending on uh, the equity company um, what, what their commitment and their 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 uh, sort of philosophies are and all that so that being said um, what Ken and I we had to go through a learning experience first time either one of us has been a minority owner and something like that from these players that are all pedigreed in you know from business schools all around the country of of note uh and uh 
banking um, firms, um, you know, that, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs types, you know, Wharton Business School types and Stanford's and all of that, right? And so, you know, you got a couple, you, you, you walk into that initially and you're feeling like, well, you know, all right, I, I'm going to be learning something here. And so I'll just kind of go along. And plus you're a minority owner. You don't want to be too entangled. And Ken and I had a philosophy when we, uh, we kind of uh, exited uh, initially from the business to become minority owners that it, it was time for us to make a gracious, gracious kind of uh, exit. And sure. from that, and allow allow the, the owners to, to have full reigns of that, and then just support that. So we did in that. In fact, you yeah. supported them bringing on a new CEO very Correct. fast, right? Yes, very fast. In fact, they were CEO was um, kind of selected before the closing, even. And you so. you were applauding that, weren't you? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so you know, you go through this, and you go, you realize you got a learning curve about what it means to be on a board, uh, be a board member, to be um, uh, participating from that kind of level and some people might have that have that skill set already from other experiences but Ken and I didn't um, so we were kind of like okay we're gonna we'll be deferential I guess yeah and so but I think it was important that what led up to selecting um, center capital was that we had an idea of what it is that we were looking for in a partner right and uh, and Bigelow did a wonderful job of pro providing a, a, a uh, quite a funnel of interested parties and we had uh, decisions to make you probably had yeah. half a dozen finalists yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and uh and and uh very strategically done in terms of you know what types of relationships could you could actually have put in front of you you know yes. from active still being active participants to being hands-off um and so what attracted us to that particular group in that part is that the professional development aspect uh, we felt that they had some some uh, skill sets in their philosophy around professional development professionalizing the company um, their their responsiveness to what our business philosophies were uh, and the culture which we felt was very important we want to maintain that um, and uh, so but a lot of the goals, the, the the big challenges that Ken and I saw in terms of meeting the market, which was uh, investment in software technology and some of the other things like that, uh, we rate, even when we were interviewing them as a possible um, candidate, we were upfront about what the challenges in the business were, and that we thought that they we're looking for somebody that could apply themselves to those challenges, and I think that the value of the company would explode if, if in the first year or two they really emphasize some of those things that we it really motivated us for looking at an exit to begin with and so what we you know, we kind of went along for the ride in terms of what their process was in terms of professionalizing the company um, and you know you do speak up from time to time but you don't know entirely what your role is as a minority partner sometimes um, and so you know we felt like we were at the little kids table at <laughs> a family gathering sometimes sure, you know sure and uh so but it, you know they were very respectful of of what we had to say just that i don't think that they that the whole board actually uh, went in the direction that ken and i saw as being more of a priority and they were looking at a different way of creating value in the company and you have to respect that these guys have hundreds hundreds of portfolio companies right so you say okay well, they must know something that we don't at the end of the day, Ken and I came out of that process realizing that we knew a lot more than we thought we did. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. And uh, that uh, 
situation, not that we could have changed anything, but I think from the point of view of, of uh, uh, some of the key business decisions that, you know, maybe we would have been a little bit more assertive um, and that would have made a difference. Probably not. Um, but, you know, I think from the validation point of view of, of the very issues that when uh, um, the company is now in, in new hands that they're dealing with now are the very same issues that Ken and I were motivated five years ago to find something to solve. And that's, I think, very telling um, story. Good. And it's, it's a fact. Amazing learning, isn't it? Yeah. It's tricky, though, right? Because as a minority owner and a board member, and of course, as the two guys who ran the day-to-day, -day, both tactical and strategic, as you described, mm -hmm. you know, you probably were very thoughtful and careful not to want to tread into the new management's territory. Absolutely. And so it's hard to know when to speak up, isn't it? It is. And uh, and think, because it's all board-level stuff, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it's confusing to some of the people, your management team, that see you in that role, too, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, they... they, they something may be happening and you they come to you and you kind of got to look smile a little bit and say don't call me yeah you know i've, I've got a different relationship to this now and i you know and i, I can give personal advice um, professional advice in terms of you know how to respond to maybe some of your stresses here or something like that but i really can't i can't uh, have the same role and re relationship that i had with you originally so and, how's and, the company doing um i would say that it's positioned extremely well if somebody solves some of those things. But there are they part of the technology uh, challenge is is that um, there's a lot of um, in technology you, you've got to keep ahead. You've got to be the on the, the bleeding edge of stuff you know, all the time. And I you know and I have concerns that maybe um, you know they're going to have some challenges there. But however. I, I don't really know that honestly I don't know that much about the new partners and what their intents on how they're going to integrate uh, this DigiArc into their business model um, so I think that there's a lot of value in the company um, the, the, um, I hope that the customers are still being treated um, fairly and that the, the stuff that we put a lot of energy into in terms of we had uh, such a high customer retention rate that we just blew people away that were studying it and so you hope that's going to be uh, carried on but I really don't know and particularly since uh, it's been sold we're not going to have any idea of exactly what's going on there right because uh, you're out now we're out yeah. right yeah. so uh, I know that that the uh, venture company capital company Sarant that, that uh, were, were our partners they rolled over a, a uh, an interest in the company. That's so interesting too, company, right? You know, That's so, encouraging. So, uh, so would you say yeah. that the so the capital gain event that you and Ken had, right. plus the five years that you had, and you had another capital gain event, was that a, a good period of learning? Yes. Um, was it necessary? I don't. I think we learned what we needed to learn in the first year or two. And so, if you had it to do over. Would you have exited cleanly out, or would you do it over the same way, or in some other way? From a financial perspective, even though it wasn't what uh, we hoped for, in terms of multiples for the second bite, as they call it, to happen, it was still worthwhile. Um, from a personal uh, kind of what I hoped to learn uh, and, and have uh, built to the next level of my own professionalism, and maybe have different opportunities out of that, then I'd say it didn't meet any of those expectations. Um, but 
financially it was rewarding and it was uh, necessary I think from a from a, a, a point of view of you, you want to keep your eye on your investment right <laughs> so what better way than to be on the board right um, and and to some degree I think it was valuable Ken and I I believe uh, did bring some valuable perspective especially early on for transitional stuff sure, sure. it's the village story stuff you know sure. that sometimes uh, they look at you like you were being quaint or something, but at the same time, I think it was important for them to understand some of those things because this is talk, where we came they from. talk about that and they'd yeah. say, "Well, actually, that's the same problem that's had, existed since day one," and yeah. give kind of a history of yeah. that, or kind of an arc of some of these issues. And I think that was very important, and I think it did it probably impacted um, a lot what was going on there early on. So remind me, was the second uh, transaction in 2021? Yes. So. Uh, do you feel a sense of completion of that? Yes. Are you thinking about some lifestyle changes now that you're uh, like into the completely new chapter? I don't think, I think that the lifestyle changes are, were already set in place um, a long time ago um, towards the mid of my uh, minority board position. Uh, we we kind of got into a groove with that and understood what our roles were and uh, did the best we could with that. But and so most of those things are already in play. Um, yeah, and if you want to talk about, um, uh, let's say, let's just say that uh, way before I even was uh, looking at an exit for the company and almost going back to my first business, um, I had a, an accountant that I had for 30 years up in Portland, Maine. He was a wonderful man, Ron Bennett. His name. Ron was, Bennett. Yes, you know, sir. And uh, and he uh, happened to get a pro promo email or something from some firm in Portsmouth called Bigelow. <laughs> and uh, it was about a book. Uh, what's the name of that book? Enterprise Value. Enterprise Value, right? Yeah. yeah. And so he said, I think you might be interested in reading this book someday. I, I know this guy, and he's, he's a pretty interesting guy. Peter Worrell's name was. I said, oh, that's interesting. Put it in the back of my mind. And uh, fast forward a few years later, and uh, I happened to pick up the book uh, prior to um, uh, you know, even really, I, I wanted to know what should be guiding my decisions, basically. And I just found that book to be a brilliant book, well written by this guy named Peter. And uh, I think it was very impactful because it allowed me to have a way of, a lot of that stuff was very insightful and very, it, it was very um, uh, concurrent with what, what I was actually looking at um, and believed about. Know, the business process and about my relationship to the business and all that and it was a really great to be able to hand that book to various people and say here's my world yeah <laughs> you know? here's what i'm thinking here's, here's my world and uh, it was uh, a great point of uh, conversation between me and my business partner in terms of okay this is why i've been trying to create value in the company and this is where we're going with us and so you know a couple years down the line and as i was interviewing you know people to do it it didn't surprise me that you guys were the people I went with because very early on just that philosophy and, and the sensitivity to being an owner manager was very clear well, why, I br why I bring that up is because one of the things that you touched on which at the time didn't seem relevant to me because it was about post exit stuff yes was about um, this whole hibernation stuff and yes. all, all, all the processes yeah. around it. so like the, almost like the steps of grief you know Real, it's realization, like realization hibernation experimentation repurpose there you go and so <laughs> in that 
in that realm of things, I think that I'm probably in the repurpose side right now. Sure. And yeah. and, uh, and some of those things didn't happen linear, linearly either. Oh, yeah. You know, they kind of concurrently yeah. in some patches here and there. But um, so I think that 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 part of it, of the realizing um, that, um, and I think it's that I, I don't know. You, you you I think hit upon something that that from all your experiences that some some element of all of those stages I think exist in yeah. people uh, and even though uh, Ken and I both uh, felt that we um, had a pretty healthy uh, idea of what the business meant to us that you really don't realize um, what being in business is like uh, on as an impact uh, personally and uh, as we were been talking uh, you know it occurred to me when the exit finally the second exit happened and I'm no longer at all involved in the company that uh, for the first time since um, I was doing all that independent work in college yeah. in the 80s yeah. um, when I was basically hung my own shingle yeah. um, and I had never not worked for anybody else you know except contract work you know you're still working for myself I never have not worked for anybody else in all that time in over 30 some odd years right and uh, for the first time I don't have I have no business enterprise going at this point in time um, and, and it's a really uh, strange realization to come to after you've been scrambling for so many years doing it you know that hey I have actually no gig going on right now you know so so first of all thank you very much for your kind thoughts about the book it's very uh, humbling for me actually to hear you say that because the reason we wrote the book is for guys like you because uh, we have so much scar tissue that we felt like, boy, if we could help you learn this in advance, then it would be maybe a little bit of a roadmap. And people either resonate with it or don't, so it's just wonderful to hear that you did, and it's just, as I said, it's very humbling. Uh, but I wanna, I wanna talk what, about what you just came back to, but before I do, let me just ask you, so if you just reflect back on the digital arch architecture experience, um, would you say that there's a time that you can identify that you would say that was um, a high point in your experience with DigiArc that maybe you're the most happy with or proud of? Not necessarily the time, but does a time come to mind that you describe as being a high point? Hmm. I knew I was going to get one of these Pete Oral questions. Uh, so you're asking me what stands out uh, as a high point? A high point. Because in, just to give you some background, yeah, and, and I think driven entrepreneurs like you and like me uh, sometimes tend to see a business or a business plan or a room or a landscape, and we can see what we can bring value to, and we can see what we can fix. And so I'm asking you the opposite question. I'm not asking you what did you fix. I'm asking you like what's what was a high point. That's a tough question. Good. I'm going to go to another question. We'll come back to it. Mm -hmm. So, so you and I um, had fun um, uh, 30 or 60 days ago, before we, we were actually planning this uh, podcast, and we were chatting about some of the books we've been reading. And you are a very, very continuous, passionate reader. I am too. Um, what are you reading? Uh, Unsettled. Uh, I think the guy's name is Steve Coonan. It's a, a book on climate science data and uh, scientific consensus around cli cli climate science 
And, and does uh, it challenge the, the consensus? Well, it seeks to define what the consensus is. Oh. It's, what, it's, it's really a, a book that, and I'm not all the way through it, uh, that is um, trying to look at the difference between science and then, and then the, the other impacts on how that's being presented and then how that's being uh, characterized um, in popular media, in media as well. Right, so right. it's a shorthand on that. Right. So and it, I find it fascinating because the guy is a scientist. I think he was uh, uh, in the Obama administration. Uh, and, uh, and I find that he, it's also a brave book because for someone to even, it's like, you know, uh, he's not, he's standing out amongst people who are doing the party line um, yeah. kind of conversation there and it's not that he has any um any um quibble with that there's climate change or anything like that he just wants people to start looking at the actual numbers involved in that um a little differently and 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 start questioning how people are characterizing the data and why they're characterizing it that way so it's a really fascinating book and i, I think particularly since he's a contrarian that's uh, why i wanted to dive into it because uh and, and it also, it's one of those books, it's sort of like a, your beginning statistics book. It's yeah. like, you know, it's like yeah. you can go, why is it important to understand how statistics work, right? Yeah. And he, it's kind of along that kind of, of uh, direction where you can say, well, actually, um, you know, uh, data and science, pure science is an important um, uh, thing to, to adhere to. And when we start uh, politicizing or creating an agenda yeah. around some of this, then you're going to distort what the actual outcome is, and scientists shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how in our world today, being able to think probabilistically is incredibly valuable. I mean, mm-hmm. You have to understand, like, there is no certainty. Right. So, like, what's the probability of A, what's the probability of B, and what are the outcomes there, and do, can you think that way? So, so, I so, think in business it's an important, uh, an important skill set, right? If you're going to try to prepare your business for what if scenarios you have to be have a contrarian at the table yeah. so you have to, if you if you have people all going yes 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 all the time around you then you you're you're not going to make good decisions based upon facts and and uh, you know the the data points that are available to you right so i think that's it's a, a good skill set to have the question and i i do that a lot myself uh, question my my assumptions my you know what it, my beliefs are you know so uh, unsettled sounds like a pretty scholarly book do you usually have a scholarly book going do you ha- do you have other light reading going at the same time how do you handle how do you manage that i'm a big uh I, i'm not a big fiction guy um and uh, but i like reading biographies and historical books and like I, and actually i went through a, a very voracious period um a few months back but i kind of more involved in uh in my uh, music uh, yeah, passion so, so right now. Tell me a little bit about that because I saw on your hat there was a guitar on there. Yeah. And tell me, tell us about what you, what's happening with you creatively or music-wise. Well, it's one of those things. It's, uh, you know, back uh, probably in my early 20s, uh, into my 20s, uh, at some point in time I realized that um, I had to find a, you know, I, I had to kind of like not rely on a music as a source of a professional career or, yeah. or whatnot but it's always been part of my life and so uh, you know you put those things aside and that you know they're always part of your life but they're kind of on the back burner at times and uh, but it's always been a passion of mine uh, for many years and 
uh, since I was, I picked up a, a mandolin at a friend of my mother's house when, when I was probably eight or nine years old and, and started plucking out some melody on it. And the guy said, you need to get this guy something with strings on it. Oh, yeah. And my mom never really got around to doing that. Until yeah. I, so I bought my own guitar when I was probably 16 or 17 years old. Yeah. Been playing since then. So um, now that I have the bandwidth and uh, plus the sort of the, uh, you know, the emotional, you know, you, you don't have the stress kind of factor in your life you kind of mellowed out a little bit then you can enjoy it a little bit differently you know so you know i don't have to play uh thrashing rock and roll at the stage of my life you know uh but i so i really enjoy i just love the the uh the the in the moment nature of music um and that and, and also the the uh, sharing it uh with fellow musicians and with listeners and then being able it's a very social um so are you thing. are you playing to perform? Eventually, yes. I yeah. mean, the COVID thing uh, kind of I I made uh, you know lemonade out of the lemons with the COVID thing, and we actually have been I've been studying uh, working with a, a bunch of guys. So. Oh, great! And we're all a bunch of old old guys making noise is what I say. Yeah. We're old you know old boys making noise, and um, so we have similar kind of vocabulary yeah. in that sense of it. But I like studying music as a, as a study. Uh, and and uh, that and so just recently actually I picked up the harmonica, which I've always wanted to uh, spend some time with and taking it seriously. And it turns out I have an affinity for it, so we'll wow. see where that goes. No kidding. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, that's 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 where I spend a lot of my entertainment time and and try to do uh, otherwise than that living in Florida, do a lot about outdoor stuff, you know. So uh, as you think about um, projects that you might be working on. In the next chapter, do you think uh, that you would get involved with a startup business or another early stage business? Is that something you've been thinking about? I think in the right situation, I would. I, I think your time, I, you start looking at your time a little bit differently, or at least I do. Um, and some people are, are they're just going to jump out of bed in the morning and go for it until they're done, right? Uh, I kind of look at my time as a little more precious, and uh, you know, if I found the right opportunity with the right, mostly with the right people, yeah. Um, and I felt like I could bring something to the table, and they and they valued what I could bring to the table, then I, I might consider that. But I'd be very judicious in in uh, that because I'd much rather do some other things. Uh, and there's so much of, of my life that I felt this business hat stuff was was fun and all of that, but it was only one aspect of who I am as a person, as a human being. And uh, I do it. It was. It's interesting because over time you realize how much of your humanity can be be uh, insinuated into a business environment. You know, and it, it is a very rewarding. It's a very creative process, yes. uh, which some people don't realize. Um, and it's also a very spiritual process if you let it be that way. Um, in terms of what you can have as impact with people around you, I think when you were talking earlier about what my highlights on the business were, yeah, I, I, I don't think of it as a moment. But I know what I what I look back at and I'm most proud of, and what I what I felt really, what I take away is feeling really good about. That's really what I'm asking. Yes. Is uh, is those moments of professional development of, of, of younger people and yes. colleagues where, uh, you know, you know, I share a little bit of what you think is good philosophy and and also what maybe got you to the dance, right? And it's a mystery sometimes, but there are some things that are common themes to. How you uh, can become a successful person, not just a, from a financial business perspective, but as a your own personal development. And I think having those moments where um, I was able to play a role, and have had people come back to me and say, "Wow, you know, 
you were the best boss I ever had, and you really helped me see this and do this and change this. That's why so we when do I do what we do. Yeah, you know, it is. And, and to me, that's the more important aspect of it. Yeah. It's, to me, I, as I got older, I realized that the business is just a vehicle for having these really wonderful relationships. Yes. And, uh, and some of them are with, with, uh, with colleagues, some of them yeah. are with customers even, and yeah. some of them are with, I think the most rewarding ones are, are the people that you bring along in professional development. And that, that to me, I'd be more interested in uh, finding a role at some point in time where I could help with that, people who are, are uh, really um, excited about, um, you know, they have that, that juice that's flowing for wanting to be an entrepreneur. And uh, so, so let me ask you that, that was kind of, that's where I'm going. Uh, you know, a lot of your entrepreneurial spirit and even skill set uh, you described in the past minutes as being as coming from adversity. You had challenges growing up, adversity growing up. My word's not yours, but I think what yeah. you were saying was you faced that adversity to the largest extent. You overcame it. That built self-efficacy in you. That built muscles in your brain and in your body. And you overcame that stuff, and you learned, and you have scar tissue, and you learn what to do and what not to do. So if you were going to give advice, if there was a smart, I, I don't know, let's say college-age person who's listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them about becoming an entrepreneur? Um, don't take my advice. <laughs> uh, no, uh, seriously. Uh, that, don't, do, you know, would, they, would you, you say, don't take anyone's advice? No, I wouldn't say that. Okay. No, I'm being a little... <laughs> Self-deprecating there, I guess, but no. I, I would say that have fun and 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 always try to people p- treat people right around you. It's just because that will make you successful. You know, I think think that you start there and then have some passion about what you're getting involved in. Well, you know, and uh, I think that the rest of it takes care of itself because if if uh, you create those relationships and you uh, respect. Now, so there's a lot of people. You know, it's like the the billionaire boys club kind of approach to things, you know, or the greed is good crowd, right? Um, there's a certain amount of that that is, you know, necessary in at the hard edge of being a business and making sharp business decisions. It's not, you know, when you're running a business, you're not really running a charity, right, in, in, in a sense. But finding that balance where you can do good and do well at the same time is, is I think, important. Um, and I think it also, over time, that's where you get your most rewards from. I don't know how you can sustain it if you don't yeah. feel that way. And I think... That, I don't think you can be – well, some people have a knack for it, but I think you, your success is measured differently if you have that kind of approach at it. Yeah. And uh, that's just my own philosophy of it. Um, and uh, so that would be my advice is, that, is uh, you know, pick a direction. Because I'm one of – that momentum is, is a big thing in life, right? And sometimes if you can get – I used to get this uh, sense of uh, paralysis because of my inertia, right? It's like, which direction do I go in? And sometimes when you're uh, in a place where you're – the whole world your oyster it can be a paralyzing kind of daunting thing of which direction i'm going to take and sometimes it's just a matter of just picking any direction because it's the momentum itself that gives you the opportunities and uh, i think that's kind of what, how Digark happened for me is i just picked the direction because i had a lot of people who were looking at my time and possibly investing in certain businesses at that time in my life and i i chose to go with uh, in the direction with ken and his enterprise out of uh, probably a dozen of different people that, over the time that have been approaching me why I don't know but at some point in time I just decided that was a good direction it felt right it just felt good and uh, I think that that sometimes is, is all that's necessary and uh, then the rest of it you know starts unfolding as it should I think so um, as you've gone through your uh, career as an entrepreneur so far uh, 
um, there may be a feeling that you have that some people have a misconception about you that you feel is a misunderstanding, even people that know you well. If I asked you that, what, what would people, even those who know you well, have about you that you think is a misconception? What would that be? Uh, I, I don't know if I have an answer to that. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know. Uh, I'm, I am who I am kind of, kind of person, you know. I think Popeye said that originally. Right? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I think we'll that... give you a can of spinach. Yeah, you? exactly. No, I, I think there's a, a That lo- doesn't trouble you. It doesn't trouble me because, uh, it, 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 you know, people either have to spend the time to, to know you, and if they don't, then I don't give much energy to that. Okay, last question. So um, in this group of listeners, both of uh, entrepreneurs and advisors to entrepreneurs, I'm, I know that there's uh, a high-performing group of people, and superior achievement in them is common. Right. Fulfillment or being content among them may not be as common. Would you describe yourself as content? Yes, finally. Say more. I think that it's not a skill that I developed well in the course of my life, but I think it's something that I've come to um, realize is happening to me. It's like almost like... Uh, it's funny you should ask that question because my wife and I were talking about it a couple of days ago. We, should, we might want to get her on yeah, to yeah. answer this question. Yeah, really. Uh, but I feel um, very, very content. Uh, I've come to a place in my life where um, I'm accepting of an awful lot of things. And, um, you know, I don't have any – it's funny. I was talking to her the other day uh, about it. So part of what has driven me, aside from, you know, the – the uh, survival kind of instinct and in being in business is there was part of me that wanted to prove something to the people who were always in my life told me I couldn't achieve something. I was from the poor side of the tra- t- tracks and, you know, you're never going to be able to do this or have this or, or become this kind of person. And I always, I lived my life in a sense in the back of everything was to yeah. prove these people wrong. Yeah. And I came to a, a realization that the most people that I was trying to prove wrong are all dead now. Uh, <laughs> so, and that, that uh, you know, that once I started realizing... And, that, and by the way, you I'm, did prove them wrong. I proved them wrong, right. Yeah. I did, right. But also I, there's a contentment to realizing that you have nothing left to prove to anybody anymore, too. I think that's kind of the, the part of it is, is that you, it's a validation kind of like that, you, you know. That's and great. some of that validation comes in, in, in strange ways when it comes back to you when somebody you've met, hadn't seen for a while, like I was talking about the, the professional development stuff, when they say things to you like that, you go, wow, I didn't realize I was having that kind of impact. Uh, and and I did. So, you know, I think that's where the contentment comes from is that uh, getting a point of reflection. And I guess that's part of, you know, the process of actually being completely clean of, of having any involvement in the business is that the it's a fact that I that I'm not involved in the business and maybe I didn't have a very limited role for a while but it's now a fact that I'm not involved in it and so that fact means that I can reflect on it as that's being in the past yeah and uh, so that when you start getting into reflection mode I think that's when some of that contentment starts coming uh, to the forefront you know I have no other challenges now call that repurpose yeah chet i want to thank you so much for this great conversation it's been a lot of fun i've been really looking forward to it for a long time so i really feel elated that we've been able to have this conversation and you you have a particular point of view which most entrepreneurs don't have so thank you for that i I am very honored 
to be uh, to be a guest here, and, and and I enjoy it as much as well. And I hope that we offline can uh, can continue the conversation going because I enjoy your company tremendously. Thanks, Chad. We will. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com.